You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Hello, Lenny here for this week's edition of Solidarity Breakfast. Today we're going to look at the budget. Before you roll over and turn the radio off, I decided that we were all rather hopeful that COVID would give the opportunity for even an average or below average government to get something right for a change. But the true awfulness of this ideologically driven group was put into high relief on Tuesday night, so it is important to know what we are fighting against. For me, it is encapsulated by the image of the Ugly Brothers, Morrison and Josh Frydenberg, playing to cameras on the lawns of the new Parliament House, like a 19th century macabre etching from Edward Gorey or a series of unfortunate events for those with a literary turn of mind. Tweedledee and Tweedledum turned gangster a day after the parliamentary debacle. Today, we will go through some of the key points using a presentation given by Ali Pennington and Matt Grudenoff from a webinar put on by Australia Institute. We'll follow with two areas that missed out, aged care and the environment. Lloyd Williams from the Health Services Union will talk about aged care and May House from the Australian Conservation Foundation, who gives us some idea how the big polluters were given free kicks despite the government's talk of a new transition economy. Kevin will round up the week and we hear a little from Andy Payne from Frontline Action on Coal at the Adani protest at the Carmichael Mine. I am not in love But I'm open to persuasion When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. The budget presentation talked about kick-starting the economy after COVID. So let's start out looking at what happened in the budget with Matt Goodenough and Ali Pennington's opening view on what happened on Tuesday night. Budgets, as I always say, are about choices. Um, And this year the government uh, chose to talk about jobs, but it hasn't actually done a great deal to create jobs. In fact, what they've done instead is hand out billions and billions of dollars mainly to high income earners in the form of tax cuts and even more tens of billions of dollars to business um, for investment at a time when, when businesses, many businesses are worried about staying open. 
Um, and, and we know that this is a very ineffective way of stimulating the economy. Um, also, the assumptions behind this budget are incredibly rosy. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, next financial year, the government is assuming that the, the um, real um, increase in GDP is close to 5%. So we're going to have a gross rate of almost 5%. Um, to put that in context, the average, long-term average growth rate is about 3.2%. And in the seven years this government has been in power, it has never reached the, uh, the average. It's always been below average. So next year, we're going to have almost 5%, and they've never reached the average in the seven years we've had and we have a recession on. Um, what I'd just say about the budget is, is it lacks imagination and it's a wasted opportunity. Um, after the Great Depression, you know, Sydney built the, the Opera House. Uh, during the GFC, um, school facilities were upgraded. What are we going to have after this recession? What lasting benefits are going to be around? Well, it looks like almost nothing. Uh, we could have had a, uh, a new energy system that um, decarbonises. We could have had, uh, we could have set up aged care. We could have set up health care. We could have set up social housing for decades to come, but we're not actually going to get any of those things. So really, it's not that everything in this budget is bad. The government is spending literally hundreds of millions of dollars, um, but um, it's a real wasted opportunity. It's interesting that Frydenberg opened his speech last night saying uh, this is the most important budget since uh, World War II. But actually, if you look at all the budgets that came out in the, the post-war reconstruction period, they were all investing in the types of ambitious public-led investments that um, Matt's outlined. Um, and instead, what we have is, um, you know, being very unfiltered here, it's, a, it's, a, it's billions of dollars into a rolling the dice of a business-led recovery. And it's clear in the, the lead-up to this crisis um, that all the same problems we had of low business investment, essentially business on capital strike, uh, none of what the government has put on the table in this budget is actually going to ensure we have the right investment and the jobs. And that was the other branding of this budget. Um, as we came into it, government said, this is a jobs, jobs, jobs budget. Uh, and in particular, they said this was going to be a game changer for women who have been disproportionately impacted by the crisis and for youth. Um, who have been locked out of, of decent work, uh, you know, pretty much since the GFC. Uh, and, you know, for a jobs, jobs, jobs uh, budget, the, the biggest um, job creation, supposed job creation program they brought forward is a wage subsidy uh, of to, to cover 450,000 young people on uh, that are unemployed. Uh, and it's, it very much resembles a work for the doll scheme and it, uh, it expires after 12 months and basically ensures that there'll be just a churn of people through um, particularly low wage, low skill, crappy jobs. So that's the biggest, that's the signposter of the jobs, jobs, jobs program. Uh, and that's pretty much ensuring that whatever comes out of this budget is going to be more insecure jobs, uh, you know, no career trajectory for people, no long term security. Um, and in particular, women have been totally shafted uh, after, you know, trumpeting this idea that there was going to be a reintroduction of women's economic security analysis or statement. Um, 240 million uh, to lift women's workforce participation. And it's really tokenistic spending in, you know, leadership programs and less than 300, you know, entrepreneurial ventures for women. So 
it's going to fall real short of getting women back into work. Um, it's clear that we needed childcare support to get that to happen and you know, legitimate jobs. So I, I would say it's insufficient spending. Uh, you know, um, the tax cuts are, aren't going to work. They're not going to um, create you know, masses of consumer spending to support new jobs. Uh, the, the, if we take that into account with the existing cuts of billions of dollars to job keeper and job seeker, um, then it's pretty much guaranteed that we're looking at long-term entrenched unemployment as a feature of the Australian economy for um, years to come. Tax cuts were announced as a centrepiece to stimulating the economy, but amongst the big numbers bandied about, let's find out where the cuts went and where they might have been better spent if the idea was to stimulate the economy. Yeah, so the deficit this year is going to be just over um, $200 billion. Uh, the deficit next year is going to be just over $100 billion. Um, and the deficits, if you add them together over the next four years, um, are just shy of half a trillion dollars. So they're, they're, they're massive, they're, they're huge numbers. And I think probably one of the best things that this budget has actually done um, is it has slayed the myth that we def debt and deficit is a problem. Um, it clearly isn't. Um, it wasn't during the GFC when the Labor Party did it. It isn't now when the coalition are doing it. Hopefully we don't have to endure more sort of silly um, scaremongering around debt and deficit. Um, it, it, it's not a problem. We can pay it back. Um, if we choose to, um, and, and, and it will not be an issue. But some of the big ticket items, probably the biggest item is actually um, a, a number of tax write-offs that business can do, um, and that's probably worth in excess of $30 billion um, over the next four years. Um, and, and essentially, that's um, asking businesses, many of whom, as I said, were worried about keeping the door open, to invest in new stuff. And if that works, then it does create some employment. Um, the problem is, is that uh, a lot of businesses, if you're worried about, you know, whether or not you're going to make payroll, whether or not you've got enough customers to meet the demand you have now, are not going to be rushing out to buy new stuff. They, don't, they won't have the money to rush out and buy new stuff, but writing it off in tax, and, and I suppose also writing off in tax assumes that you have to pay tax. And so a lot of these, the, the bulk of these um, tax write-offs, you know, assume that you actually have tax to pay that you can write off. The other big ticket item is the income tax cuts. That's just under 20 billion, about $18 billion over the next uh, couple of years. Um, and that mostly goes to high income earners. So they're bringing forward stage two. Now stage two, if, if you don't remember, basically uh, helps people, uh, most of whom earn more than $120,000 a year. To put it in context, we did an income distribution, about 90% of the benefit of stage two goes to the top 20% of taxpayers. The bottom half of taxpayers get about 4%. So half of all Australians at the bottom get 4%. The top 20% get 90% of that tax cut. That's next financial year. This financial year, they've extended the, the Lomito and stage two, um, and it, it is um, a bit better as far as the income distribution goes. But again, the problem with these tax cuts is, is that um, um, the low and middle income earners will get most of it at the end of the financial year when they put in the tax return. The high income earners who are far more likely to save it um, are getting it every fortnight in their pay packet. So just to repeat that, because those numbers I'm sure will be shocking to a lot of people. 
can you just repeat those numbers about where the bulk of the benefit goes from bringing these tax cuts forward? Yeah, so bringing forward stage two, basically 90% of it goes to the top 20% of taxpayers, of income earners. Um, and the bottom half get about 4%. In fact, I think um, something like 96% goes to the top 30%. So basically nothing outside of the top 30%, 4% outside and, of the top 30%. And what you're talking about there, that's like a permanent decrease in the amount of tax that they'll be paying, yep. but for the lower and middle income earners, they only get that benefit for this financial year. Yeah, exactly right. So, so they'll get the LMITA, which would be the biggest part of their tax cut. They do get a small tax um, cut that's permanent, but it's tiny in comparison. Um, as I said, you know, it's only about 4% of the benefit. Um, whereas most of it comes through in the LMITO, which is low and middle income tax offset, which is basically a tax refund um, at the end of the year. And the other problem you've got to remember is, is that uh, from ABS stats, we know that the average savings rate has gone from 6% um, in the March quarter to 20% in the June quarter. So, and that's not surprising as economists. You know, when you're worried, people tend to save, they tend to pay down debt. They're worried they're gonna lose their job. If they yeah, lose that makes job, sense. What are the chances of getting another job right now when everybody else is losing their job and unemployment's so high? So they, they save it all. The problem is uh, uh, stimulus saved is stimulus wasted. It doesn't, doesn't generate anything if it's saved or used to pay down debt. Um, and also that's the average savings rate. So low income earners don't save. We know that in normal times, the top 20% um, usually save about a quarter of their income. Now, the savings rates have quadrupled. So, and most of this tax cut goes to the, those top 20%. So, you know, I mean, how many jobs it creates? Well, you know, Treasury has some rosy figures about 50,000, but I, I highly doubt that we're going to see anything like that. Um, Hi, Ebony. Yeah. Because the, there's, a, there's a relationship between the tax cuts and the, the big 30 billion um, tax offset for, for businesses too. Um, and we're talking about growing inequality. And um, not only will those tax cuts benefit the you know, top uh, income earners, which are more likely to hold assets and run businesses, uh, you know, who's, who's actually poised to, to capitalise on a 100% tax write-off for, for new capital because actually leading into the crisis um, businesses weren't investing they weren't spending um, and the and that's part of why this story of we had a strong economy coming into this crisis is false um, what we had was actually increasing profit share of a small number of businesses who weren't investing and they didn't have to invest because we kept giving them subsidies and handouts without any conditions attached to them and that's what good policy would do. If you're gonna provide you know, some giant concession, you should say, hey, provide some decent jobs for people here, um, invest long-term in this economy. But we don't, the Australian government doesn't do that. So all that happens- handing it out. They just, it just hand, it's handed out and uh, a small number of businesses, and you know, we should be upfront. The only sector that's gonna benefit the most from this write-off is mining, because they've got all projects lined up to invest right now. Um, and they're going to be able to write off all that capital intensive initial construction you know, infrastructure of the, of the sites. So um, it's, it's pretty much a, a direct handout to that sector, but it's just it, the asset write off and the tax cuts work together to compound inequality. And then you factor in the fact we've cut the coronavirus supplement for the most needy. So it's less jobs, more poverty um, and more desperation and destitution and higher inequality. That's how the, these things will fit together. And just to highlight how perverse these tax cuts actually are, um, 
people on low and middle income uh, on low and middle incomes will actually pay more tax will pay more tax next financial year than they will this year because the lamita will be removed so they're going to pay more tax next year than this year whereas high income earners get to keep their permanent tax cuts one of the problems with handing out money to uh, to people as stimulus is that they have the option to save it um, and during um, times that are scary, like during a recession, uh, if you have the capacity to save and high income earners have the capacity to save, then they tend to save a big chunk of it so it doesn't get spent. But there are groups within the economy who don't have the choice to save. If you're on unemployment benefits, if you're on minimum wage, you probably spend almost all of your income just meeting the basic necessities of life, paying rent, paying for utilities, buying food, these are the things you spend your money on. So if you give money to them, they're highly unlikely to save any of it. And we, we know that uh, when they um, doubled the, uh, the unemployment benefits, uh, there were lots of stories of people going to the dentist and getting um, uh, work done, going to the doctor, doing, doing things that they had been putting off because they simply didn't have the money. So low income earners, which is what um, the, the, the Labor government handed out a big chunk of its stimulus spending to, not all of it, but a big chunk of it, actually does get spent in the economy. Um, whereas handing it out to high income earners is far less effective because worried rich people save their money, poor people spend their money. And uh, both of those are entirely rational decisions. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, Alison, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, we already have evidence uh, about what the coronavirus supplement has been spent on. And that's uh, that was an immediate boost to the lowest income people, not just those that are unemployed, but the payment was is given to, um, you know, wider groups, people on youth allowance. Um, but some groups were obviously left out and that's a huge problem. But um, there is uh, clear evidence that as soon as that supplement was introduced, uh, the as an income bracket, people earning 60000 and below um, as, the, as the shutdowns came down, they actually ended up carrying the bulk of consumer spending. So every income group above 60000 uh, tightened their belts and saved. And then we saw later on in the, the ABS stats a uh, confirmation. That's where the housing the, um, household saving rate increased to near 20%. But it was really clearly those people at the bottom who were spending. Um, and of course, it's, it's probably one of the crudest things that economists can do to always talk about like the, the jobs and consumer spending stimulus from giving money to poor people. Like we, we should obviously be striving for a society uh, which eradicates poverty and it's very easy to do this. And I think in crisis, it's, it's, it's clear as day that uh, how is it that we tolerated hundreds of thousands, you know, millions of people in a, in a place of insecurity and poverty. Uh, we have, you know, Poverty sponsorship programs or Australian middle class people can sponsor the lives of, of, you know, poor people. I mean, this is within Australia. It's one of the richest countries in the world. It's, it's just phenomenal. We do this. But crisis shows when we introduce these measures, particularly the coronavirus supplement, that it is like the most effective way to, to eradicate poverty quickly and restore dignity to people's lives. And the stats prove, as, as Matt said, what people spent it on was were essentials. Essential spending just skyrocketed on medicines, yeah, doctor visits, um, fresh fruit and vegetables, fruit and vegetables, um, and it, it changed the lives of of you know many many people. And it's uh, you know it's it's a it's a crime that it's been cut by three hundred dollars, um, and it's already impacting those people's lives. So 
yes, it's good for, important for the economy, important for stimulus, but it's also important for, for building the kind of, you know, inclusive, um, you know, equal society and economy that we should all be striving towards. Hi, this is Liz Stringer and you're listening to the Mighty 3CR on 855 AM and digital radio, 3cr.org.au. You're on Solidarity Breakfast and we are listening to an analysis of Tuesday night's budget from a webinar run by Australia Institute featuring economists Matt Goodenough and Ali Pennington. Let's move on to the big announcement about wage subsidies to halt youth unemployment and the creation of jobs. Well, to, to start off with, JobMaker has just been this um, blobby beast that anything that gets uh, that, gov- that government wants to say is about creating jobs, they just throw it under the JobMaker banner. So from the budget, we now know that JobMaker includes the income tax cuts. So it's just they've just thrown everything <laughs> under the banner of JobMaker. Um, but the, the major jobs creation program that they've um, hung their hat on is a, a credit to employers who employ young unemployed people on JobSeeker. Um, and there are two rates. There is uh, one rate for people um, between 16 and 30 years old, and it's paid to employers of $200 um, a fortnight, I believe. It could be a week. I should check that. Um, or uh, $100 a week for people over 30 years old. And I think they must work up to 20 hours a week. So this uh, program is supposedly going to cover 450,000 young people. Uh, And, you know, there are huge questions and huge problems with this because it's not clear if it's going to be administered within the welfare system and therefore not be um, extended basic labour rights to the ability to be paid the right wage, uh, to collectively bargain, to improve your wage, uh, to be extended work health safety um, requirements. Um, or if it's going to happen, you know, um, in in the welfare system. So there are some key issues with this program is uh, it only runs for 12 months, the subsidy. So uh, what I think will happen is that employers will take on these subsidised, public subsidised cheaper workers, uh, sack them after one year because that's when the subsidy ends. Uh, and they will either use um, use the program in those kind of low skill, low wage sectors, particularly places like agriculture. And we've we've seen the the fruit growers all through the news saying we've got this shortage of labour supply, um, which which of course they could raise their wages and provide incentives for people to travel out to the regions. But um, these sorts of programs I see fix, fitting in with like the undersupply of migrant cheap migrant labour, um, as well as the possibility that the program actually leads to employers uh, sacking existing workers and replacing them with these um, these cheaper, you know, state-supported ones. So this is um, I have huge alarm bells are ringing on this this 450,000 jobs program, especially because it's been it's been pitched as the answer to the youth jobs crisis, um, which is you know offensive. Um, the other major component of um, this program is the 100,000 apprenticeships. This is under Job Trainer. 100,000 apprenticeships uh, that will be funded. 50% of their wage will be funded by government to employers, and that's 100,000 in addition to the 180,000 they extended the subsidy to in March. Um, again, I call BS on this because actually, in from 2012 to before the crisis, we lost 200,000 apprentices and trainees, uh, traineeships in our, our skills pipeline. And that's a lot to do with the, the 
um, defunding of TAFE, which is the main provider of apprenticeships, as well as the fact there's no work for these people to do. So I, I think that this 100,000 apprenticeships call is also going to be um, a furphy. I think these people need somewhere to study. There's no funding for the TAFE system, so they actually have somewhere to do their formal studies. And there's not necessarily clearly any work for them to do long term um, because government hasn't committed to those long term sustained investments, um, you know, either in infrastructure or in our social infrastructure that would uh, allow that um, allow employers to, to, you know, take that risk and invest in recruiting someone and training them long term. So it's it's what's the, the, the elephant in the room here is that what we needed proportionate to this crisis was direct job creation from government in the public sector. And they are at pains to convince us that only the private sector can do this. Um, and these two programs, I think, really reflect um, the, the weakness of that uh, perspective and um, how, how short it's going to fall in, in meeting our jobs crisis. But um, we, we found that 160,000 more jobs would be created if we gave that money to employment intensive industries directly. That is the government directly spent in and invested in things like aged care, invested in universities, invested in childcare. Then you get so many more jobs, 160,000. And, and if we use our jobs figure, um, it's almost 200,000 more jobs. Um, would have, we would have got almost 200,000 more jobs if we invested in these sectors rather than handing them out in, in tax cuts. And that just highlights how awful uh, tax cuts are at creating jobs and stimulating the economy. And now the big ticket item for Josh Frydenberg was infrastructure. Again, big numbers, but were they that big? Listen. Yeah, look, if there was anything that the government was trumpeting more than jobs, it was about infrastructure. Um, and I think we've never seen a bigger molehill um, and a smaller mountain uh, <laughs> when the budget papers came out. Um, there's actually $10 billion um, for infrastructure, which might sound like a large number. That's $10 billion over 10 years. Now, compare that to um, $30 billion um, over four years to business, uh, almost $20 billion in tax, year, uh, tax cuts over four years, and $1 billion a year is pretty tiny. Um, you know, it's actually quite small and, and it's kind of weird the way the government has trumpeted it so much. Um, and you've got to also remember that this government has a real habit of making big infrastructure announcements that then go nowhere. Like, we, we don't see anything. So, you know, this, this $1 billion a year is probably not going to be $1 billion each year, but rather lots or most of it in the outer years. Um, and so really, this infrastructure spending is going to be quite small. What about manufacturing, the great engine of the kick-started economy? A big part of the government's branding, uh, industry branding of this budget, was about a, uh, a rebuilding of the manufacturing sector. And you might remember that uh, early on as the crisis hit and when the COVID commission was, National COVID Commission was put together, a lot of the, the pretext of that was about rebuilding manufacturing and then it became part of the gas-led recovery um, and then it got yeah, more, more scripted up into an agenda. But actually, uh, this announcement came before the budget, but it, it was just for $1.5 was given to manufacturing um, for a sector that's had decreasing output, collapsing employment, um, uh, a more limited range of products being produced. So 1.5 billion, again, is dropping the ocean. In fact, it's only um, less than half of 1% of its total output of the sector right now. 
So uh, there's a small modernisation fund that government's put forward of 52.8 million, which would allow and encourage businesses in manufacturing to invest in research and development, to invest in new technologies. Um, nominally, that instant asset write-off that government's brought forward would allow um, uh, firms to employ, uh, to, to invest in more capital and more um, you know, productive in investing, um, in productive investments. But uh, the because there's no plan for manufacturing and there's no um, more holistic industry plan that would nurture the industry long term, the kind of thing we saw in the post-war uh, recovery. Uh, it's, yeah, it's fair to say that um, we're not going to see a, a turn back of uh, the very stagnating levels of research and development happening in the Australian economy. In fact, uh, under this government was the first time that we saw research and development spending across the private sector and public sector decline for the first time in our post-war history, which is terrifying <laughs> for, a, for an economy that calls itself, you know, forward thinking, innovative, advanced. Um, really, we are uh, declining and hollowing out, and it's a big part of the 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 fact that we've the mining sector is just sucking all of the guts out of of um, the middle part of our economy, which is um, manufacturing. So, um, absolutely, uh, investing in research, um, new technologies, and education are are key parts of giving us all of the the building blocks to to build a more invest a more productive. Um, larger economy with more people and more jobs. It doesn't produce the jobs in itself. I mean, if you if we didn't take an axe to the university sector um, and we engaged in mass public research spending, uh, you know, triple the size of the CSIRO, uh, in provided thousands of direct graduate roles for young scientists. These are all sorts of things that government could have done uh, if it were if it, if it gave a shit essentially about investing in research and you know technology and the future of um, and the health of this economy. But I, uh, I guess I'd say looking at the manufacturing spend and what they've done to universities, it's pretty clear that they're not serious about any of that. Yeah, and if yeah. I could add, uh, Ebony, like the university sector is a classic case. Um, you know, they, they wrote the rules of JobKeeper so universities couldn't get them. Universities have been sacking lots and lots of staff. They've just passed um, legislation, or that looks like, sorry, that looks like they're going to pass legislation now that's going to um, to massively increase the costs of humanities degrees. Um, you know, I think cut funding for research. Yeah, exactly right. So, like, you know, they seem to have this, this ideological hatred of the university sector, and yet this is the place where, you know, we create ideas and, and it can be the long-term drivers for economic growth. And, Alison, correct me if I'm wrong, but manufacturing is really part of the reason why it's an economic powerhouse is not just because of its investment in R&D and innovation, but also because it provides a lot of jobs, I think, even though it's lost a lot, you know, it employs close to a million um, Australians and they're traditionally well-paid jobs, permanent jobs, full-time jobs. Is that right? Yeah, and that's in part because of the capital intensity of the sector. Uh, because if you're going to, if you're running, you know, a, a manufacturing outfit, um, you, you, it generally tends towards wanting to employ uh, committed, high-skilled workers. So it's a it's a more long-term thinking sector. It, that's you need to have um, you know businesses that are determined to be in it for the long run because the layout, the capital layout, is so big to to get up all of your machines and your you know your place at the workplace, the factory. 
Um, so, you know, it, it lends itself towards a structure of full-time, better, secure jobs because those employees don't want their workers to piss off elsewhere. They want to hold on to them. Um, and it's a completely different sector and employment model to the one that Australia has been driving in this neoliberal period because we packed, off, packed up all the manufacturing and sent it away. In fact, we willed it away. The, this government sent, said goodbye to the, the, the rest of our automobile manufacturing sector. Um, and it's a completely different workplace relations and sector you know, innovation model compared to you know, advanced economies like the Nordic countries, which have really strong, healthy manufacturing sectors, great skill systems, and higher paying, secure jobs. What about women who have been most impacted by COVID? When we had the shutdowns, uh, women were most likely to lose their jobs because they were in those customer facing sectors. Uh, then we had this explosion in the caring burden where women took on a disproportionate share of more care for children, for the elderly, uh, more household tasks. Uh, and also because women came into this crisis making up a higher proportion of insecure workers, um, which means that they're cheaper to sack basically when a crisis hits for employers. All of these factors came together to, to create this perfect storm for women and their access to paid work. Of course, the free childcare policy from government uh, lift, lifted some of the, the, the pressure on households and allowed you know, children to access important um, early child education. But then they, they pulled the rug out from that policy, you know, like so soon after they'd, they'd given, thrown that lifeboat. So that was a big game changer um, because it pretty much, it entrenched all of the, 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 the labour market fallout of the start of that crisis and entrenched the, 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 the reality that women were not going to have an easy road back into the workplace. Um, and that's, that's what's missing. I mean, government really, really, uh, there was a lot of pressure on them to respond to the, the disproportionate gendered impacts of the crisis. And that's why they said, we're gonna reintroduce this um, women's economic statement, which is historically something released alongside budgets that, that's supposed to outline a comprehensive plan for removing barriers for, uh, for women to access paid work, improving their overall quality of life, um, you know, participation in policymaking, and it was, just the most piss weak uh, document, um, and it was almost it was almost comically short on detail. I think any any woman that was or anyone that was following the gender story like would have just been scrolling and trying to look for more information. But it was there was nothing. Yeah, exactly. Two hundred and forty million uh, supposedly to repair all of that damage done, which, as I outlined, clearly very structural problems. Um, the Australian Institute and the Centre for Future Work have done heaps of research on childcare, which shows that the, the system easily pays for itself if you let women back into the workforce. They earn more, they pay taxes, it pays for the system. Government could have brought that sort of thing forward. Um, it's, the, it's clearly the most demonstrated you know, benefit for women to get back into work. Um, but instead we have uh, just sort of tokenistic, you know, 50 million for a women's leadership program, um, about raising awareness about women's, uh, you know, getting more women into male-dominated occupations, you know, presumably because they've given no money to female-dominated occupations and yeah. public services and childcare and, you know, aged care, like all of, or even, you know, healthcare system in the middle of a pandemic, they, they've trumpeted infrastructure and the, the route for women out of this is to um, put on a hard hat and learn how to, you know, build a dam. Build the dams, you know, because that's where the money's going. Um, so, yeah, it's it's there's no direct job creation um, measure they've put forward. The closest thing to that is a 500 
person cadetship uh, to support women into STEM fields. And, and that's like a, an advanced apprenticeship that from their studies through to their, their placement in work. 500, I mean, there are millions of young women who, who need work right now. Um, so it's, yeah, I mean, offensive is the, 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 the raw and filtered version, but um, my economist explanation is that it will fall very short of, of increasing women's workforce participation and repairing their incomes. And really it, it marks a return to traditional gender roles. I think a lot of feminists are concerned we're looking at the erosion of decades of progress to, to paid work. And also uh, we know from the existing gender pay gap and from women not participating in the workforce as much, that has huge knock-on effects in terms of superannuation um, because women obviously accumulate less during their working lives. But um, if you can just uh, talk to me briefly about the fact that, you know, there's a huge cohort of women who have just given up looking for work. And if they're out of the workforce, they're not earning money. What's that look like down the track when women uh, go to retire? Yeah, too right. I think we kind of already see what this looks like because the, the largest growing cohort at risk of homelessness is older women. Um, and that's this is the, the structural inequalities in both our labour market and our retirement income system, you know, exploding before our eyes. And it's really concerning to see government take money away from homelessness services in this budget um, at a time where we clearly have a national housing crisis. Uh, so I looked at some of the data on superannuation early release, which we should cast our minds back. Government introduced this super early release scheme and basically forced very desperate people to fund their own survival um, in March. They brought that in two weeks, over two weeks before Job Seeker and Job Keeper. Uh, so um, what we saw is uh, over 1.3 million women actually rated their super accounts. Um, over, I think, 13 billion has been stripped out. 300,000 women have completely um, you know, stripped their entire accounts. And of most concern is one of the groups of women that, that took out the most money were the aged between um, 40 and 55, which is sort of like the prime earning years before you retire. So I think, you know, we already have the crisis with, um, you know, older women who uh, don't accumulate the same have the same opportunities to accumulate um, savings and um, superannuation savings. Um, but now we, we can see the crisis coming. It's that next um, cohort of women who are approaching retirement who are going to, you know, it's, it shows very clearly that we need to plug all the holes in the superannuation system and tighten it. Um, and of course, this is the opposite of government. Uh, what are they doing? Because they've tried to strike a blow to, to the superannuation system through this whole crisis because mm. you know, they've got an agenda and they're, they're pursuing that. And the best for last, the environment and the climate emergency. Yeah, look, the, the budget could have meant so much um, for the climate crisis. I mean, even, even countries like the UK under Boris Johnson, the Conservative, is looking at powering all of the households in, in the UK with wind power um, as part of the stimulus package. And, um, but here, there's a tiny increase in arena funding, um, but there's very little else. Um, and in fact, a lot of the, um, the, the tax incentives, um, while not specifically directed at the fossil fuel industry and in particular the mining industry, are going to benefit them the most. So we know that, that um, if you can write off um, investments, you know, there are large uh, mining companies that have got huge investments and they're going to be able to take advantage of writing all of that off against their current profitable position because we know that resource prices haven't really fallen at all 
So they're going to be the biggest beneficiaries. So, the, so fossil fuel and, and mining are definitely huge beneficiaries out of this budget. So um, it's a little bit like the income tax cuts where it's a huge outlay of spending, but really poorly targeted to those who need it least. That's exactly right. And, and remember, um, the mining companies would have been making these investments anyway. So this is, this is an additional investment. This isn't going to create more jobs. This is just basically handing them back money, allowing them not to pay any tax, not that they pay a great deal of tax anyway, but making it easier for them to pay no tax at all um, uh, uh, under this, the guise of, of stimulus spending. But as far as, as um, money for renewable energy, as far as um, for decarbonising the economy, there's almost nothing in it at all. Um, and, and the amounts are piddling in comparison. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we're looking at the budget, possibly the most mediocre offering from a below-average government in a most pressing time in history we could have asked for. I spoke to Lloyd Williams, National Secretary of the Health Services Union, for his take on the budget's failure to mention aged care. First off, uh, the federal government committed to adopting the Aged Care Royal Commission recommendations about addressing COVID-19 in aged care facilities, but uh, the budget had no allocated spending on uh, any of the key commission recommendations. What uh, is your reaction? Look, look, um, uh, yes, uh, what, what we see from this budget is no funding to address the fundamentals that, um, that need to be addressed in, um, to deal with the aged care crisis uh, and to build better aged care services uh, for Australians. Uh, you're absolutely right about the um, uh, some of the key um, uh, recommendations uh, of the Royal Commission was about uh, increasing funding to ensure adequate staffing uh, to allow uh, more meaningful visits uh, for residents. So, but they haven't provided any funding uh, for those sorts of things. Um, look, the. The, the, the budget uh, uh, funding uh, to date hasn't dealt with any of the fundamental issues that we have in aged care. And the key issue is the workforce crisis. There's nothing in this budget uh, around staffing levels. There's nothing in this budget to deal with uh, the right uh, skill mix that we need uh, to provide quality care uh, in aged care. Uh, there's nothing to deal with insecure work and improving uh, secure jobs so that people don't have to work multiple jobs. There's nothing to deal with the attraction uh, of, uh, of aged care workers. We, we, are, uh, we have a workforce attraction uh, problem in the sector and there's, so there's nothing to deal with the low pay uh, situation that we have. Uh, and there's nothing to deal with inadequate training. Um, so, Aged care workers can rightly feel pretty disappointed uh, with this budget is that there's no clear plan for real change uh, in aged care for workers or older Australians. 
so it's a pretty disappointing budget when it comes to aged care. Since the uh, privatisation of many of uh, the uh, aged facilities, there's been a lot of uh, concern about regulation and I know that for at least a decade now, uh, people have been calling for uh, um, quotas, uh, proper levels of uh, uh, skilled workers at facilities. Uh, And your, your members must be feeling the heat. Absolutely. Look, the the government has missed a golden opportunity here uh, to create jobs in a growth sector. Uh, they they could have built better jobs in the care economy, and they could have built better services for ageing Australians. Uh, but they've uh, uh, they've not done that. Principally, the problem that we have with aged care is that there's been years and years of neglect. Uh, the the combination of privatisation, changes to quality standards and poor funding has led to a race to the bottom. So to deal with this, we need a forward plan that restores quality aged care services for older Australians. And a critical part of any plan is to create a highly valued and secure workforce We need safe staffing levels so staff have time to care. We need better training and we need secure and decently paid jobs. And um, and there there is nothing in this budget to take us forward to ensure that uh, we can uh, deliver uh, safe uh, and better aged care services with a uh, a well-respected and... um, uh, and, and secure workforce and staffing levels and time to care is critical to those outcomes. I find it really extraordinary that uh, we have a pandemic which has exposed all of these issues in aged care and hundreds of elderly uh, Australians have died because of this. Uh, they talk uh, that After this came was sheeted home to the federal government, who is responsible most of the time, even though Richard Colbeck, who's the minister, was called to resign, they came back with, oh, he works really hard, which led me to uh, think, don't they think that the people who work at uh, your members don't work hard? Oh, a- absolutely. That, that's right. Look, it, you've identified that um, the, the long-term problem here. The crisis in aged care is not new. It's certainly been laid bare by the pandemic with devastating consequences, but it's not new. Um, uh, the, uh, the, the fundamental um, uh, inadequacies of the system that, uh, uh, that's caused through not having a uh, well-supported workforce uh, has um, has created a situation where, uh, you know, the, as I said, the devastating consequences of that is that people have died uh, and families have been devastated, and uh, and that responsibility lays at the feet of the um, of the Morrison government and the uh, the Minister Colbeck. So uh, during this budget uh, process, were you, your union, or any people within the uh, industry, do you know, involved in? Were you asked for your opinions? Were, was any any consultation happening? 
Oh, look, since the beginning of the uh, uh, the pandemic, uh, unions collectively have been uh, screaming out uh, for the government to address the uh, the key issues around workforce staffing levels and to provide additional resources, particularly for uh, you know training for PPE uh, for better uh, staffing levels. Uh, but it largely uh, felt on, uh, on on deaf ears. Um, you know, the government felt that uh, it knew better uh, and doesn't understand the um, uh, you know the the crisis that uh, that the workforce has endured throughout this pandemic. I mean, many of our members have um, you know they they feel that uh, you know they just haven't been listened to, they haven't been supported. And and this budget says that uh, the government uh, is not prepared at the moment to support them into the future. Um, you know we have we have no commitment to long term funding to deal with the fundamental problems in aged care, and we have no commitment to funding transparency. All of the money that the government has announced throughout the pandemic and at this budget. One of the fundamental, one of the key things that it continues to lack is funding transparency. There is no accountability uh, for how uh, private providers uh, use that money and account for that money. And these are the things that the Royal Commission's been uh, uh, been saying that the government should address: um, more funding, more staffing, and more accountability. Uh, the um it was interesting because actually the publicly run places had much better outcomes than the privately run places. Is that something in terms of the COVID? Yes. Uh, yeah. That's really revealing, yeah, it, isn't it? Is it is because, because, oh, absolutely. And it's, and it's, uh, and one of the key issues there is that the state funded services have better staffing levels. They have, a greater commitment to provide uh, uh, training. They have a uh, uh, better skill mix and they have less insecure work. So there's no rocket science to this. If you, if you have a race to the bottom where you have low pay, insecure work, inadequate training, uh, the wrong mix of skills and staffing levels that don't give people time to care, it's a recipe for disaster, and that's what we have seen in this pandemic. But it's not just because of the pandemic. The pandemic has shown it for what it is, but it's been going on for years under um, uh, uh, under this government and uh, and uh, the previous uh, uh, governments. It's interesting because... Uh... And, and it has to change, you know. Yeah, I was just going to say that Josh Frydenberg confidently stood there when he gave his budget speech that it reflected their values. Uh, do you have confidence in this government and their values? Well, if it reflects their values, it says a lot about their values because uh, aged care has been shortchanged uh, and more needs to be done and it needs to be done now and they've failed that test. Our members should be central to the plans for Australia's economic recovery. The care economy is a massive employer and the government has simply turned its back on it 
by, by saying that uh, we are not going to provide funding to deal with the issues uh, around uh, staffing levels, uh, you know, the right skill mix and, uh, and, and creating decent jobs for, uh, for aged care workers so that we can retain the, the, the wonderful people that we've had, we have you know they have uh, they have put their heart and soul on the line throughout this pandemic, um, and they should be rewarded. They should be rewarded with decent pay, and they should be rewarded with uh, more secure jobs and better training. But the government uh, has chosen not to do that. They've um, they've taken a piecemeal approach to uh, to this budget. Uh, there's bits and pieces uh, throughout it, but it. Um, uh, in terms of one-off sugar hits to service providers and to the regulator uh, and to other things, but there's nothing to deal with the fundamentals of workforce reform and quality reform for the future. Uh, one thing uh, before you leave, uh, uh, we've got a Royal Commission that's saying all of these things and we've had a pandemic or in the midst of a pandemic where hundreds of older people have died. Uh, it's, yeah. it's hard to think what more can happen to make a, a cloth-eared government do what its citizens are asking them to do. Yes, well, uh, well, that's right, and uh, the government is not listening, and they've, you know, and they've presided over, you know, not providing funding over many, many years. The Abbott government actually pulled, you know, massive amount of uh, money out of aged care. Um, the, uh, as I said before, the privatisation and changes to quality standards uh, and poor funding has led to a race to the bottom. And they um, and they don't seem to uh, uh, to want to respond to it. They say they will implement the recommendations of the uh, Aged Care Royal Commission, but when it comes down to an opportunity to do so, uh, they fail. Uh, they said that they would uh, implement all of the recommendations from the Royal Commission uh, arising out of COVID but they failed to provide funding for adequate staffing to allow more meaningful meaningful visits. And that was one of the recommendations of the uh, Royal Commission. So so they say one thing and it's not met with, uh, with their actions when, uh, when it comes to funding uh, or transparency of uh, any funding that might be provided. So I think uh, uh, through this budget, they've certainly failed the test in terms of uh, their commitment and uh, their so-called uh, values. And uh, I think it says everything about their values. They don't seem to care. You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. We finish off our look at the budget with a word from May House, economic analyst and campaigner at the Australian Conservation Foundation on their take on the budget. The budget this year allocated $33 billion over the next four years for the fuel tax credit scheme, which is essentially subsidising companies' consumption of climate-destroying fuels like um, BHP and Rio Tinto and Glencore, what they're allowed to do is pay zero tax on their off-road diesel use, whilst individual Australians are paying 42 cents per litre. And it's essentially allowing these companies to... um, purchase diesel fuel and further contribute to admitting um, greenhouse gases. That's just one example. And as you mentioned, sorry, I was just going to say, as you mentioned, there's 
the asset write-off as well. I think there's a real missed opportunity here to put a caveat on the assets that can be purchased to make sure that they reduce carbon emissions and, um, you know, direct corporate spending into clean energy, electric vehicles and battery storage. There's um, the right of what it's essentially doing is it's allowing companies like a trucking company, for example, to purchase diesel guzzling fuels and get a deduction back on that expenditure. Yeah, that's extraordinary. The because it does appear that the assets offsets uh, are actually the biggest free kick to multinational companies that pay no tax, and it's been the uh, fig leaf is that there will be jobs in it. But uh, as we all know, there are actually quite a low amount of jobs when it comes to these big companies, anyway. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And and at a time like this, it's critical that we're putting money into jobs that take us into the future, take us into a clean, healthy, safe environment and a future that Australians can be proud of. So that's just a real opportunity, a missed opportunity for the government to be investing in renewable energy projects and, you know, strengthening our manufacturing industry to be powered on clean energy instead of being powered on gas, which is what the government has put $52.8 million towards in this year's budget. Now, it might be a bit invisible to people, those two things that we've just talked about, but one that's not invisible is the uh, government uh, support for Vales Point coal-fired power station in New South Wales. Yeah, this is a really disappointing decision made by the government this year. Essentially, um, $34.7 million was allocated towards energy affordability and reliability. And it's come out this morning that out of that 34.7, 8.7 million is being directed to upgrading the turbine turbines on Vales Point. Now, Vales Point um, is a 42-year-old coal-fired power station it's set to retire in 2029, but there's been a real prop from uh, its owners and the federal government to keep it running for another 20 years. This budget is essentially putting Australian, the Australian public to foot the bill for a toxic and outdated coal power station that is just fueling the climate crisis. Now, I know that the Australian Conservation Foundation, as well as some other organisations, in fact, all environment groups were locked out of the budget papers. You weren't allowed to go to the lockout and COVID was given the um, reason for that. But uh, is it, it could, could it be uh, understood that the government really doesn't want to have close inspection of what they're doing because they're pretending that they've got green credentials. Yeah, look, Annie, I, look, I don't want to speculate into what the government's motives, uh, true motives were behind uh, locking us out. But what I can comment on is that this is the first time in what I believe is 15 years that the Australian conservation hasn't been in the budget lockup. And it's really disappointing at a critical moment when we're at a crossroads where we can have a gas-fired economic recovery or we can have a true economic recovery that recovers, rebuilds and renews Australia towards a climate and nature positive 
um, future. And so, it, yeah, it's been really disappointing that in this situation we were locked out and not given the full opportunity to scrutinise and review the budget in, in, in the instance that it came out. Do you know if the government uh, actually took any advice from any organisations that have got uh, environmental credentials? Uh, look, I mean, I'm not myself aware of that, but what I do know is that when we were coming into the budget period and as the government was looking towards um, the economic re- recovery, there was a real focus in the National COVID Coordination Commission to have a manufacturing task force, which was propped up by uh, gas industry experts and a real push away from the environment uh, movement. So I'm not sure if there has been um, other opportunities for environment movement to be involved in it, but we can clearly see that uh, the gas industry have been involved and that's um, shown in this gas recovery uh, budget that we can see today, this, this year. Now, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency and the Clean Energy Finance Corporation did get some money. However, it's uh, pre- pretty s- small potatoes and uh, also they seem to have decided that gas is a green energy. So some of the money's going that way, isn't it? Yeah, look, let's be clear. Gas is a toxic uh, fossil fuel. That is not where we should be going. And, and you're right. The Australia's Renewable Energy Agency has been given um, some funding. But if we do a comparison of that funding against the fuel tax credit scheme, what we can see is that coal mining companies uh, alone will receive approximately $1.2 billion a year on average. And that's 13, roughly 13 times what uh, the Australia's Renewable Energy Agency will receive in comparison. So you can see it's just a fraction. And what the budget is essentially doing is supporting coal mining companies to fuel this climate crisis at the expense of investing in renewable energy. What would the Australian Conservation Foundation have preferred to come out of this budget? What would you have liked to have heard? Yeah, look, it would have been great to see the fuel tax credit scheme scrapped and more um, more money invested into renewable energy and environment. We know that we're at, at this critical moment where we can create uh, strong future-led uh, jobs in renewable energy industries, put them in uh, manufacturing supported and powered by renewable energy. And that's that's where the money should have been spent. And unfortunately, this year, the budget has failed to do that. The only thing that, that um, I have left to say is that, you know, Australians deserve a budget that funds the future that they want. It funds a safe and healthy environment, one where people and the planet can thrive. And We look forward to a budget that does that in the coming years. Unfortunately, this year isn't the one, but we're confident and positive that we can see that uh, in in the future. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do. And everything can change. A weak solidarity bricky team lister when after we hung on every exciting word of big economic guru Josh Pride in Iceberg's belief budget, if we could call going into several trillion dollars debt 
budgeting, the verdict, whether it was positive or negative, was summed up for us by the sundry chambers of profits with the Troublawazi Capitalist Review speaking on their behalf. Corporate Troublawazi has hailed Josh Friday Icebergs for handing down the right budget at the right time and backed his claim that the huge new investment allowance would be a game changer. Of course, we asked naively, uh, given the massive deficit, you'll have to increase taxes to raise the revenue required to claw them back. We have given massive tax cuts to the corporate sector. Th this is because we care about the workers of this country. Uh, just to clarify that, Josh, is that billions based on what they don't pay anyway? Very smart, because it won't be missed, because it was never there in the first place. And we have given billions more to the caring business class, like paying for everything they purchase. This is because we care about the workers of this country. And this conforms to our belief that the economy must rightfully be in the hands of the laissez-faire market forces private sector, and the government has no role in business um, other than financing it. Well, obviously, yeah, other than financing it. I notice you predict unemployment, those workers you so care about who have no work will get to 8%, lower than most people predict, but we'll concede that for the sake of, and will stay high for years. What have you done about that? We have slashed JobSeeker and will slash it even more later this year and again early next year. And we have slashed JobKeeper and will slash it even more later this year and again early next year. Uh, but there's no jobs for them. Slashing the income they bludge on will act as an incentive to get off their bums and look for work uh, for the jobs that, that don't exist. Exactly. We can't have them whooping it up at public expense. The, the government isn't made of money, you know. We, we can't just throw money at people. And the notice you forecast wage growth will be lower than the cost of living increases, that real wages will decrease in value. This is because we care about the workers of this country, making sure they don't price themselves out of the job market. Although having said that, slow wage growth continues to worry our caring business class friends. Uh, and they and you can't think of an obvious solution to that problem? We've racked our brains. And notice your commitment to laissez-faire market forces and government not interfering in the market extends to your very close friend and fossil entrepreneur, Travis Bacon, by giving millions to upgrade his Vales Point coal mine to, quote, provide additional dispatchable generation. This is a further example of our commitment to addressing environmental issues. People claim we don't address these issues enough, but what could be more of an environmental issue than supporting more and more coal? You, you can't have it both ways. I think people feel you have it one way, but, but that aside, I hadn't realised fossil electricity generation had been locked down by coronavirus and your friend, poor Trevor, can't pay to upgrade his fossil himself. Trevor will make an invaluable contribution to this handout by bringing the discipline of the market to the plant we pay for, which is quite simply not the business of government. Well, there we have it, a budget universally applauded by the caring business class, and then who keep this economy in this country going, assisted only by the public purse footing the bill, showing they are prepared to acknowledge a small role for government and by the lazy, avaricious workers who provide their profit.
Oh, and to make those workers they so care about feel even more secure, they stuck in proposed legislation to put more restrictions on industry super funds to compensate for the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission they set up to hand the industry funds to their mates, backfiring and nailing their mates instead. Final word on the massive corporate welfare, so sorry, sorry, the budget mentioned recently how the airline that used to be our airline privatised at a from the inefficient hand of government, has pocketed billions of our money during the COVID handouts and is pitching state governments against each other to bid for relocating its headquarters with our very own, the pejorative Dan, declaring he had an attractive offer to make. Well, Wyndham City is putting in a bid to locate it on state-owned land earmarked for an employment hub, whatever that is. And what's this got to do with final word on the budget, I hear? Just that caring business class tourism minister Simon Birmingham urged states to stop offering the airline that used to be all sorts of public largesse, pointing out it would not create new jobs but just redistribute existing ones and then, direct quote, no embellishment, a bidding war would represent the worst of federalism and spark a wave of corporate welfare now can we see why that's the final word on the budget? Other than after I wrote that, SBS News had one of those transposition problems with a six-month-old kid on the screen labelled Jim Chalmers, Shadow Treasurer. And I thought, well, at least he'd make as much sense. And now I'm hoping you can sort out or decipher a very strange message last Saturday morning when I returned from shopping, check messages, and a, and a friend telling me she may have to reassess her beliefs because she said, maybe there is a God after all. I, I've got no idea what she was talking about. Maybe a conversion on the road to her because she did seem to be very happy, very, very happy. Not so happy, of course, this depressing news from the US of the UN of the US of the world that poor Donald Trump or the poor, the big supremo, has come down with the Chinese disease, which he knows is about to disappear. And maybe the Rose Garden gathering to announce the nomination of Amy Catholic Barrett to being the law of the dear baby Jesus to the Supreme Court has turned out to be a, a, a problem. And in that spirit, reports are that people are praying, but the reports didn't say what they were praying for. Not that they need to, because Donald assured us, or assured a US of people hanging on his every word, there is nothing to fear. Don't be afraid. Best pandemic ever, ever although not sure how reassuring that would have been to poor Melania, also struck down. Imagine how she must have felt as she looked out the White House window and saw a helicopter descending into the front garden and Donald emerging. Many cases seem okay for a few days, then relapse pretty badly after 10 days or so. So in Donald's case, let's hope, uh, sorry, let's hope, sorry, I can't make out the next word. Let's hope, oh, oh let's hope it doesn't. Also feeling sick, poor Jamie Puker, scion of the sadly lamented Lord Kerry of Waterhouse, about whom Jamie attributes his filthy rich wealth to the fact that his parents had sex. Facing an inquiry, Jamie that is, into whether he's a fit and proper person to run his new Barongaroo casino planned to open in December, announcing he was sick, and it was the sick, not him, that caused the odd problem they're investigating. And as the went on, he looked sicker and sicker, showing increasing concern for the health of his private mint, a.k.a. casino, the health of his wealth, his soul, in life. 
the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin didn't think the possible corruption and corporate malfeasance pointed to by the line of questioning, causing poor Jamie's worsening condition, even mildly relevant, concentrating on the state of his physical health and Mariah Carey's claim that during their relationship, unlike his parents, they never had sex, which the Wapping Sin saw as the big story while the rest of the media seemed to think that salacious gossip at best had absolutely nothing to do with the inquiry story, showing how they have no idea of what really matters. Concentrating on incidentals like whether Jamie and the gang are fit and proper persons to run a casino, and for what my opinion's worth, which is zilch, looking at the fit and proper people running casinos around the world, they fit the bill perfectly. And also, for what it's worth, we can't blame Mariah, can we? <laughs> Looking at poor sick Jamie giving evidence from his trillion-dollar luxury yacht floating off Tahiti, we can assume the fit and Fitbit has nothing to do with physical fit. He does seem to have put back on all that weight he lost, which is, um, uh, how will I say it, uh, encouraging. Interesting observation, there must be some memory-erasing substance in the air around corporate crime cases or Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commissions and related inquiries, because it's amazing the number of very important people holding very important positions based on the millions they have paid or make in profits, who lose their memory completely once they get into the witness box. Remember poor Bondi, he, he was a mental wreck on his way to being a mental wreck behind bars. We have to worry about how they continue to perform in their job keeping the greatest little economic order going, although there must be some antidote in the corporate or whatever church air in which they operate, because when the Inquisition's over, they make a remarkable recovery, miraculous almost. While our government continues to find new fossils and upgrade close friends' coal mines, renewable coal and gas, and congratulations to that exemplary Middle Eastern example of liberty, freedom and democracy, Saudi, for announcing new environmental initiatives to counter climate change, if there is such a thing as. Kingdom to go greener, the headline announced. See, it plans to plant more than half a million trees in an area where temperatures regularly exceed 40, meaning they should thrive. Although, just a thought, and I hate being a doomsayer, although perhaps they could make a slightly more effective contribution by ceasing to dispatch fossils across the globe. As I said, just a thought, because all those emissions are spewing from exhaust pipes and machines and factories must be good for us, because again, our government has budgeted to prop up oil refineries here after their multinational struggling owners explained they could not continue their invaluable contribution to laissez-faire market forces without government footing the bill. There is a theme this week, isn't there? If we didn't know better, Big Supremo scuttled them more or less, son, a.k.a. Scummo's favourite word from last week, extortion, could spring to mind. Except we know that only applies to evil unions like that maritime lot doing terrible things to good, laissez-faire, market forces, stevedores. And we must congratulate the mainstream media for reporting on that dispute without bothering to inform us what it is actually all about, other than lazy avaricious 
worth exposing their avaricious side and wanting to be paid. And it seems silly to mention the real issue is Pat Pricks and the stevedores wanting to slash their conditions and their jobs. Well, we can't stand in the way of progress, can we? And in industrial disputes, we know it's always the evil union's fault that the community must suffer the results of their thoughtless, selfish behaviour. And never the caring employer's recalcitrance or refusal to negotiate seriously at fault. Because for a start, caring employers would never be recalcitrant or refuse to negotiate. And why bother reporting that the pharmaceutical industry said there was no problems with medical supplies when scuttled them and Lord Rupert of Wapping and the media entrepreneurs generally knew this was one industry that didn't know what it was talking about, unlike the stevedore industry or the media industry or the parliamentary democratic industry for that matter. And finally, speaking of parliamentary democracy, we're recording this before Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony all being oozy delivered his budget reply, but something tells me we haven't missed much. Good morning. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. We received a note from our comrades from the Frontline Action on Coal who are pushing against Adani's Carmichael coal mine in Queensland, where despite being assaulted by Adani workers, they had been falsely accused of property damage. It gave me a chance to catch up with Andy Payne on the spot for what... This is Annie McLaughlin. I'm from 3CR Solidarity Breakfast down in Melbourne. How are you going? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good. I thought I'd ring you up and ask you if I could just talk to you a little bit about uh, this assault on protesters by Adani staff. Yeah. Can you give me some idea of what happened? Yeah, so I guess one of the things is... So this morning, uh, a group of people from Frontline Action on Coal uh, blocked the road uh, where Adani is building their Carmichael Rail Corridor. Of course, the... where they'll transport millions of tons of coal um, to be burnt and go into our atmosphere. And we've done a number of these actions. Uh, We have a number of roles, including people whose job it is to de-escalate any uh, situations that might arise. Um, And so somebody had locked themselves a cattle grid and a few cars of Adani workers drove up and uh, one of the Adani staff got out of the car, threatened a group of people, and then uh, threw a punch at one of our uh, photographer who was there. And fortunately, the, it didn't do a lot of damage, the punch. Um, but then subsequently, Adani claimed um, spuriously that we had instigated by it, or they didn't mention it at all. They just said that we had thrown rocks um, and kicked car doors, which they offered no evidence for. But we assume this was to deflect attention from the action of their worker. So they actually went to the police and made a a charge, didn't they? Yes, well, the police were coming anyway because um, we had somebody who was blocking the road locked to a cattle grid, and so it's normal that we interact with the police here. But, yeah, when the police arrived... uh, they said that it was to do with accusations of property damage, which uh, just hadn't happened. And so um, at that point, we sort of said, well, okay, if you're going to do that, well, this person has assaulted us and we have film footage of this. So how is the demonstration going? How are you guys going besides this kind of aggravation? This must happen all the time now, I guess. 
Uh, it doesn't happen all the time. I think it, it's a part of doing direct action. I think uh, sometimes it can bring it, situations of conflict and we prepare for these situations. We train everybody who comes up here, does nonviolent direct action training, which includes, you know, um, role-playing, de-escalating tactics and uh, assessing ourselves of how we react to stressful situations. And so we're fully aware that this can happen. Um, and I think one of the theories of civil disobedience in the end is that it does, it brings out the tensions that are in our society. It doesn't allow things to just uh, keep on going as a status quo. It um, makes people um, balance the assumptions that they have. And so sometimes that can lead to these kind of conflicts. Um, but we've, yeah, we've been here for three years now, something action on coal and um, doing direct action to stop the construction of the Adani mine. And it's been a, an interesting year to do that with restrictions due to COVID. And, um, but we've continued to, in how we can, to resist the mine and um, keep an eye on what Adani's doing as well. This is a company that has a number of dodgy practices. So here on the front lines, we like to keep, um, keep watch on what they're doing and to report it if necessary. And, uh, and do actions like we did today, which is, uh, stopping work, making the um, the issue of coal and climate a live one by bringing different people into play, bringing the workers and police and our legal system into um, assessing the, the ethics of coal mining and not just letting it go on until our planet's totally fried. Yeah, yeah, good. And more strength to your arm. Um, tell me, um, uh, Adani has got a track record of... Uh, uh, slippery facts, doesn't it? Yeah, well, that's right. One in the one of the, the first court challenge to Adani's mine um, way back in 2015 uh, really brought to light. So you know the way Adani just have kind of played fast and loose with the truth um, when in cross examination one of the Adani workers was said, well, you've said publicly that there's 10,000 jobs linked to this mine. Where are these jobs? We can't count them. And ultimately they said, well, actually it's more like 1,300 jobs total, you know, not just like the whole jobs um, linked with it. And so that, I guess, set a, it should have been a warning sign everybody about what Adani's approach to facts is. And um, they were later prosecuted by the Queensland government for failing to disclose some of their land clearing work um, and most recently, they were found to have uh, conducted unconscionable conduct uh, against other mining companies for their port, overcharging other mining companies. Um, and so, this is yeah, they're not responsible corporate citizens. They're a company that will get away with what they can and will uh, lie when it suits them. And so, uh, it's the fact that our, our government continues to uh, cut deals. We've seen the Queensland government agreeing to a royalties deal with them just recently um, to companies with a proven immoral track record. It just shows the need for ordinary people to, to take actions like we have today. Well, the budget just came out and the uh, Morrison government has has said it's uh, all, all reflects its values and most of the free kicks have been given to uh, big uh, energy companies. And um, they've even given uh, public money to a 
coal-fired uh, 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 facility in New South Wales. Um, it's probably more important than ever for people like you to be doing what you're doing. What is? Have you got any statements about the budget? Um, yeah, I think the, the budget, I guess, it probably does reflect the values of the Liberal Party. Um, it's, in a way, it's a bit more generous than they've often been, but they've always been generous to their mates, you know, the top end of town and the, the big mining companies. That's always been the way they um, hand out subsidies to, and tax breaks to those people, and we've seen more of that. And I think um, that's... They don't sort of try to hide that. They maybe sometimes have a bit of a rhetoric about ordinary Australians or something, but I think that does show the values and um, that makes it even more imperative at a time like this, a time of uh, significant challenges financially and socially, I guess, for Australia of, uh, to talk about what kind of country do we want um, and more so how do we bring that about. And so that's where extra parliamentary Actions like taking direct action are, are so important because you've got political parties that uh, that will support the top end of town, that will support these mining companies here. We've got an election in Queensland at the end of this month and both major parties have said they'll support the Adani mine, even though we've consistently got polls that say the majority of Queenslanders and the majority of Australians are against this mine. And so it just shows the need for a variety of political tactics and for people getting active to show our values and try to show the kind of Australia that we want. Uh, the uh, water table uh, that will be affected by uh, the Adani mine, uh, can you talk to me about that a bit? Yeah, so uh, today we were talking specifically about water. Adani's uh, currently in court again. The federal government's being taken to court by Australian Conservation Foundation for not applying the water trigger to the Adani mine. The water trigger is a government policy that says that major projects that use a lot of water need to be, their water usage needs to be independently assessed for its environmental impacts. And the federal government chose not to apply that to Adani, even though the mine uh, is projected to, is licensed to use 12.5 billion litres of water a year from the Sutter River. Um, but that's besides the water that comes into their own pit that's obviously flowing underground. That doesn't get measured. They can use as much of that as they want. And so we're talking huge amounts of water here. And it's just another example of how the government has, um, you know, enabled this mine um, and dodged the, the duties that they have to our environment. The reason, you know, these environmental laws that we have, like the water trigger, haven't even been put in place here. And so... Uh, that's a significant concern. We'll see how that court challenge goes in the federal court. Um, but as I said before, this is all Australians require water to live, unlike coal. You know, it is a, a basic necessity for it. And so much of inland Australia requires the Great Artesian Basin, which sits underneath this country um, in western Queensland, where the Adani mine is. And so it is an, an issue that affects us all and will affect us into the future where with climate change, um, droughts and water shortages will be more of an issue. And so we need to make sure that uh, our priorities are straight and we're making sure the government know what our priorities are. They're taking a terrible gamble, aren't they? 
yes, well, um, I don't know. They think about it as a gamble. The, there's consistent support for these uh, environmentally destructive companies and their practices, and uh, they have a, an undue influence in our politics. And so there's all kinds of interests that mean that uh, these mining companies get away with these things. And um, I guess the, there's reasons why politicians will approve it. And uh, it's certainly, it's not something worth gambling, uh, our, our water or our climate. Um, and yet in full knowledge of what these consequences could be, we, we're still seeing these mines going ahead. Mind you, mind you, there's still resistance. You know, they're not going ahead. People of Australia are trying to stop them, just that the government's not. <laughs> well, we have come to the end of the show. Goodbye from me. Catch you next week. Keep safe. They offered me the office of me the shop. They said I'd better take anything they got. Do you want to make tea at the BBC? Do you want to be? Do you really want to be a cop? Career opportunity, the one that never knocked. Every job I offer used to keep you up the dock. Career opportunity, the one that never knocked. I hate the army and I hate the RAF. I don't wanna go a fighting in the job and go I hate the seven sides blue. I won't open that phone for you. Career opportunity, the one that never knocked. Every job they offer used to keep you up the dock Career opportunity, the one and never knock You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.